You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's look at economics here. Um, soft landing, hard landing. I don't know. It looks like the Fed's trying to help us out here. Uh, we welcome Frances Donald here. She is the chief economist at Manulife Investment Management. She joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We appreciate you coming into the office. So, Frances, what are you guys over at Manulife thinking about this economy? The market just in the last five or six weeks just said, this thing's ripping here. I mean, we have the yields on 10-year Treasury go from 5% to now less than 3.9%. I mean, what's your call on the economy for 24? Well, there's a, there's a lot of questions in there, because if you ask me, what do I think happens in the next month, we couldn't possibly have a better economic setup, right? You've got growth holding in there. The consumer hasn't given up just yet. Yep. Inflation data globally just coming in, downside surprises every morning when we wake up, and a Fed that said, you know what? We don't even need a recession to cut. We're ready to cut even into this soft landing. You get support for equities. You get support for bonds. Just about every asset class does well there. But remember your investment horizon because we are still looking at a material slowdown in the middle of 2024. Recession risk is still elevated. And even let's just throw out that term recession. Mm -hmm. Stop thinking about is it two quarters of negative GDP, one quarter of negative. G Markets don't care as mm -hmm. much as headlines do. We're going into a growth slowdown middle year. So this is a tactical Goldilocks, a nice air pocket that you can trade. You can also still believe there's a recession on the horizon. Two things can be true at the same time. The people who are calling for a soft landing right now, what do you think they're missing? What are they not seeing in the data that maybe you are noticing? Right. Well, there's uh, a whole difference of opinion as to, and this is the core question, is this time really different? Because if you look at the wealth of leading indicators that have traditionally helped you forecast a recession, every economist knows those are flashing red. Uh, the uh, difference between those calling for a soft landing and those calling for a hard landing is really how much of a factor do you apply to saying there are things at play that are different than past cycles that mm -hmm. will mute or mitigate. And frankly, even those shops that are calling for mild recessions. And if you look at a list of consensus 
calls, it's either soft landing or mild recession. Mm -hmm. You don't have very many who are actually calling for a traditional deep recession, and you don't have very many that are calling for this reacceleration in 2024. But if you if you look at that, what they are effectively calling for is that the the Fed is easing a little bit. This time is different. It's going to be very mild. Um, so this is really a difference of opinion, not a difference of data sets. Mm. How important is, is the labor market here? Because the labor market has just been incredibly resilient here. And we even had a, a tick down in the unemployment rate last uh, month, which I don't think many people were forecasting. It's kind of tough to have a slowdown in the economy if everybody's got a job and rates and wages are going up. A job full recession. We job full the, recession. We had the jobless recoveries coming out of the GFC. Now this concept of job full recession. Uh, but there's a few things going on there. One of which is you don't actually need the consumer to be in a recession for the U.S. economy to have two quarters of negative GDP. Okay. That can come from housing, CapEx. Let's not forget, manufacturing is in a recession. Yes. Globally, yeah. we've actually had the longest manufacturing recession, one of the longest ever. So there are sectors and pockets of this economy, existing home and sales. transportation companies will tell you they've been in a, a goods recession. I don't have to convince anyone who's on the good side of the business. I don't have to convince small cap portfolio managers that we're in a recession. They believe me. And frankly, I don't have to convince anyone in Germany, Canada, right. Japan, or outside the United States that we're in a hard landing. This is a U.S. story very specifically, and it's about services holding on. How much do jobs matter here? Well, one of the big challenges is jobs always break last, and they don't break in a linear fashion. It's a hockey stick. Forgive yep. my Canadian reference. <laughs> it goes hard and fast upwards. And if you take a look at some of this underlying data, like continuing claims, if you look at that big drop down in vacancies, the risk is that the unemployment rate rises. Now, when you're an economist working for a bank, or the sell side, you've got to come out with a forecast, you've got to come out with conviction. When you're in a role like mine, you work with portfolio managers every day, they don't really care what my point forecast is. Mm -hmm. They want to know what is the balance of risks. Mm -hmm. And the risk is not that the unemployment rate declines and the job market strengthens from this point, mm -hmm. it's that the job market weakens. And it's really asymmetric risk going into 2024. Does it matter for the economy? Absolutely. But here I would say this is the difference between that mild recession soft landing and a worse recession. It's not about upside, it's about what downsides are not being recognized. So then against that, what do you make of all of the Fed speak that we've seen recently. I mean, first Powell kind of not pushing back on that idea that financial conditions have loosened. And then in the wake of that, a few officials coming out and maybe trying to walk back those expectations just a little bit. Yeah, you know, we're always trying to get a sense of what exactly is the Fed watching as if they sit in a <laughs> secret room. Well, they I guess they do have a, a little bit of a secret room mm -hmm. and they have this magic formula and we're all just trying to guess exactly what that magic formula is. I don't think it's that at all. I think just like economists and strategists and portfolio managers, the weight that they put on different factors changes. But again, if I'm sitting at the Fed, what is the balance of risks? Here's a risk that I haven't heard anybody talk about, downshooting on inflation, sub 2% inflation. Why are we not talking about that risk when we see this material decline in inflation expectations, energy costs? There's a wide range of goods prices that are dropping really quickly. That's not my point forecast, but it's a risk that needs to be assessed and has to be taken into account by the Fed. At the end of the day, 
I don't know how much it matters why they pivoted. Hmm. It just matters that, as I've been saying, the toothpaste is out of the tube. It's real hard to walk it back. And I hear every day, oh, but they, they're pushing back. They're saying they're not talking about rate cuts. Well, how come every day I turn on uh, my news, my Bloomberg terminal, and I see all the talk about how we're not talking about not talking about <laughs> rate cuts? It's too late. And even, you know, the ECB and the Bank of England, they try to push back as well. The market says, we don't believe you. We don't believe you because you get UK inflation this morning that just says you can walk that talk as much as you want. But the data is not supporting that we are not in a disinflation and growth slowdown type of environment. Stepping back a little bit on, from a global perspective, how concerned are you about China? Because it's just been a lot of soft data coming out of China. The reopening wasn't what I think a lot of investors anticipated the beginning of 2023. As you look forward to 2024, how do you feel like China is going to impact maybe the global economy, the U.S. economy? Yeah, so we, we think about China in terms of fat tails. Um, and by that, I mean that the, the distribution of risks on both the downside and the upside are quite large. So on one hand, we, you know, as I said earlier, we're talking so much about soft landing, hard landing in the United States. The rest of the world is yep. already in hard landing territory. Emerging markets led interest rates higher coming out of COVID, and they are now actively cutting. China is in a very significant fiscal and monetary easing cycle. We've got a range of emerging markets that are already in easing. The Fed and the rest of the developed market central banks are laggards when it comes. They will be the last ones to go. So following China through this disinflation, I think, is really clutch. And let's also remember, China is in deflation. They have negative CPI right now. So they are really important story. What I think is telling about China is that they've put the pressure on the fiscal side to ramp up support. That's an upside risk to the global economy, but fiscal doesn't impact your economy overnight. So that's more of an upside risk to later 2024 into 2025. When you look at the lags between Chinese economic activity and U.S. economic activity, China's slowdown becomes very impactful to, to the United States in the first the next six months. Right. Interesting. And just we had some, you know, some data that just came out at 10 o'clock today. The consumer, uh, the conference board consumer confidence came in much better than expected. So the consumer still hanging in there. Good. You know what the consumer loves? Lower gas prices. Yes. Mm -hmm. yep. How interesting is it that we are um, always talking about, oh, you know, the, the central banks, they have to contain inflation expectations. You know, um, I, I worked at a central bank and when I did, I told uh, some friends and they said, oh, you must be a bank teller. Um, <laughs> and I tend to think about that because the perception is that what a central banker does meaningfully moves yep. inflation expectations. And that's true in some components. But if you track where consumer expectations are for inflation they just track on top of gas prices yeah, that's what people see over time and i can tell you it's three dollars at the wawa in wall township francis donald thanks so much we appreciate it chief economist menu life investment management joining us live in studio even after being live on television earlier today so we appreciate that commitment hi i'm ron krzyzewski chairman and ceo of steeple financial advisors if you're not growing your practice you're losing market share Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I want to get to uh, the latest on former President Donald Trump. We welcome Caroline Fredrickson, distinguished visiting professor at Georgetown Law. Uh, Caroline, can you encapsulate for us, summarize for us what you think the risk is here uh, to former President Trump from this ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court taking uh, Mr. Trump off the ballot? I, you know, the, the risk obviously is not so great for him in terms of winning Colorado in the general election because that wasn't really destined to happen in any case. There hasn't been a uh, Republican who won that state since 2004. But nonetheless, it sets a precedent for the other states. And there will be, no doubt, a number of other um, uh, states deciding uh, the same issue about whether or not Trump can appear on the ballot. And for those in those states where there's actually a viable uh, race, uh, which is most states in the country, you will actually have a significant effect. Uh, because if other states are going to rule that Trump can't be on the ballot um, and we have a situation where it's obviously a very closely divided electorate, it could be the difference uh, whether he wins or loses. How do you see this situation faring out in the Supreme Court? Well, it's really hard to say. This is a completely novel question. There has This has never uh, gotten to the Supreme Court, even involving uh, someone of a, uh, of a lower level, uh, let alone a president presidential candidate and former president. So um, I think it's quite complex because the issues have never been addressed. Um, there have been some lengthy dueling law review articles trying to explain um, the meaning of the provision. It's the insurrectionist clause in the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Um, and the bulk, the vast bulk of scholarly opinion is that uh, President Trump is squarely within the sights of that uh, provision. Um, but, you know, there are those, those questions are open and we, you know, we can only think that the, the Supreme Court is going to have to uh, approach them anew. Are there other states that you're aware of that are maybe in advanced stages of doing something similar to what Colorado did? Well, there is an appeal from a, 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 a ruling that kept Donald Trump on the ballot um, that is going up, I believe, in Michigan to their Supreme Court. Um, so that one um, could um, pose a, a problem for him. So Michigan is a you know fierce battleground state. So um, I, and I think that the advocates and the, the voters who've been bringing these cases are surely looking at every opportunity now 
to make um, uh, to to use the Colorado ruling as a precedent because it was very thorough. It was very thoughtful. So um, it will be weighed very carefully by other other state courts. Can we backtrack for a second? What does it actually mean that Trump is not on the ballot? Well, it just it will be an empty line, I suppose. I mean, they haven't printed the ballots. This is still for the uh, for the primary in Colorado. Um, and uh, it will mean that the other Republican candidates will be listed and Donald Trump will not. This is only for the primary or he can't appear in any election for public office? It will be any election. Right mm-hmm. now, we're, it's just the primary. And, this, and the, the court itself, the Colorado Supreme Court, has uh, held its opinion um, uh, in until uh, early January uh, in uh, because it's very possible the Supreme Court might be able to will decide whether to um, take an appeal and will rule very quickly. Um, but after January 4, it will go forward. So, so um, you know, it's, uh, Caroline, what is the kind of the, the real legal argument that if it gets to the Supreme Court or maybe put just simply, what did the state of Colorado court find that A, he was an insurrectionist and B, the Constitution says insurrectionists can't be elected to office? I'm a little unclear as to the legal issue. Well, um, so there are two elements here, and um, it's basically that um, for someone who has taken uh, an oath to the Constitution, they cannot um, be an officer uh, of the United States. So that is, Donald Trump took an oath to the Constitution when he was president, and then um, under the factual analysis of the trial court, he engaged in insurrection, and that judge used the January 6th report um, and its extensive evidence of the 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 ways in which um, uh, former President Trump had been fanning the flames of the insurrection uh, to find that he had engaged in insurrection. But that judge on the legal question, which is, is Donald Trump, um, uh, is the president one of those officers that is barred um, from being a candidate? Uh, And um, it seems pretty clear, I think, to most people that the president is an officer of the United States. But that's the legal question. All right, if we step out kind of and look at pre- former President Donald Trump's legal issues in mass, um, I have, where is the greatest risk, do you think, to him? I guess as it relates to the election, not personally, I guess, but just in terms of his ability to run um, and potentially you know, be elected. Well, I really think the actually biggest risk to him are the other cases. I mean, you know, it, it's a... It's a uh, you know, certainly a, uh, a important finding that he engaged in insurrection, um, you know, really just taking up what the January 6th commission had already uh, had already done. Um, but I think the, the other cases, uh, the Georgia case uh, involving uh, election uh, interference and the, the, the case in D.C. involving January 6th and election interference, I think those are the ones that are really could well bite him. Um, because even, you know, the kind of the most hardcore MAGA voters um, may start to question their candidate if there's a, a rock solid criminal case against him and it's moving forward and he's losing. And just one final question here, Caroline, does he get good representation? I mean, it just seems like I don't know any of the firms that he hires these various <laughs> things. They're not firms I've ever heard of. And do you think he gets quality representation? Well, you know, I think just ask Rudy Giuliani how he's doing. I think he's got some big bills uh, right now, and I don't see Donald Trump stepping in to pay them. So 
you know, I think, you know, one of the problems is, is the kind of relationships he's had with lawyers over the years haven't really meant that those lawyers have, have been able to succeed um, in their businesses. So I think a lot of um, very more serious, reputable lawyers have stepped away. It's, it's a dangerous place to go. Interesting. All right. Well, there's a lot to, to follow there. Caroline Fredrickson, thank you so much for joining us. Caroline Fredrickson, she's a distinguished visiting professor at Georgetown Law, kind of breaking down uh, some of the legal issues surrounding former President Donald Trump in Colorado, where uh, they have, the state has removed uh, him, at least at this stage, uh, from the ballot for the upcoming primary. So uh, another issue for the former president to deal with from a legal perspective. And it's tough to keep track of them. you need a he's got a lot of them. you need a, you need like a you know bingo card to kind of keep track of everything you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the tune in app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 1130 fedex fdx stocks down 11% it was up like 50 some odd percent yesterday on year to date. So a big surprise here. Uh, company reported earnings disappointed uh, in, with their financial results here. Lee Klaskow, uh, he covers all the transports and logistics stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Second day in a row in studio. How about that, man? Um, What's going on at FedEx? Lucky me, lucky you, Yes. Paul. How you doing? <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, so FedEx, it's really the express business, if you think about their air freight business. So they have air freight, ground, and express? Is that how it brings No, uh, f- express is the air freight. Okay. Ground is the stuff that comes yep. to your house. And then freight is the less than truckload business. Okay. And the express business that most of us think about. Yes, kind of- the planes, because that's what they were built on. They were first an express company that built out a ground network where UPS was a ground network that built out an air network. Uh, see, makes it all Because Fred Smith kind of invented that, air that network. Yeah. So what, what's going wrong with that network? Uh, it's just gotten too big. Um, so they're trying to do a lot of cost savings, but the cost savings aren't coming up to the, uh, I guess they're not servicing in the EBIT line. Uh, because they're facing some headwinds, whether it's demand headwinds from uh, just consumers not buying as much. Uh, the U- U.S. Postal Service was a big customer. They're actually using less air, more ground, and so that's not great for FedEx. Um, so there's a lot of headwinds that they're facing, um, and it's really impacting their overall uh, margins, and their margins were you know below 2%, wow. which is not great, and it was about 220 basis points less than what uh, analysts were expecting for the quarter. What did we learn about the health of the U.S. economy and the U.S. consumer from these FedEx earnings? It's a great question. I didn't learn much because uh, I was more or less focused on you know their businesses. Mm-hmm. You know what we, but but what I would say is that you know we are recalibrating demand. Uh, we're we're still coming off of those creamy highs from the pandemic, so we're still normalizing, uh, and that's going to continue to take time. Um, but you know the consumer seems to be in, in a pretty good spot. Um, they mentioned that their peak season was running uh, relatively well. Um, but it's also worth noting that they were expecting probably more volumes in their express business, and that kind of um, misaligned costs and kind of added to the uh, the margin pressure that they faced in their uh, fiscal second quarter. So during the pandemic, everybody started shopping more, and and a lot more packages were going through the FedEx system. Did they add a bunch of fixed cost to service that demand and now we're at a point of oh now we've got to take some of those fixed costs out of the system 
No, it really wasn't that. For them, it was really about getting uh, people and technology in the right places. Because, um, I mean, they had the sorting facilities, they had yeah. the planes, they had the, 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 the trucks. Um, you know, what they needed to do is just be a lot more productive in terms of the throughput of their, of their overall system. And it's, and it's a very tough business because, you know, they do, they try to predict as best as they can a couple of weeks out. But, you know, things happen, um, yep. you know, demand happens and, and, and supply chains uh, shocks happen like we're seeing in the Red Sea right now. I hear the term shipping recession a lot and yeah. we're in a shipping recession. I'm a little confused. I mean, everyone at, in my apartment complex is getting about <laughs> 10 packages a day. My doorman is completely overwhelmed with all of the packages, but can you talk a little bit sure. about like, what does that mean and so, how are we seeing that in So we've, we've been in a freight recession for uh, quite some time. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think about it, you know, 2022 was the peak. Uh, if you look at any earnings of any companies that I cover, whether it's a, a railroad, a trucking company, a parcel provider, a marine shipping provider, uh, you're going to see peak year earnings for most of them in 2022 uh, and fantastic earnings in 2021. And that is really was just purely driven by the pandemic. And, we're, and again, we're normalizing, right? So, uh, you know, Paul, I'm sure you're going on vacation soon. So instead of, of maybe buying a, uh, a new furniture, you're, you're going away. Yep. Uh, and so people are doing more of the services aspect. And then all of a sudden, interest rates are higher, so people are buying less houses, and so you're you're filling the house with less stuff. Because when you buy a house, you usually buy a lot of stuff that goes along with it. So just people are just maybe still on the services side more, uh, and and less on the product side more. The good news is that the destocking that we saw over the last 12 months seems to be coming to an end, uh, and so that would mean to us that normal seasonality are, are going to go back into force in 2024, and we should see more normal seasonal patterns next year. And you know, for most of the companies that we cover and in, in, in the markets that we cover, we are expecting growth um, north of where GDP expectations are for. So for FedEx, the stock was up 50% right. as of you know, yesterday's close, now down 10% today. What was the market, if we are in a recession, is the market looking forward to saying, hey, 24 and 25 are going to be more better years relative to 23, I guess? Yeah, so the reality is FedEx was a poor performer before 2023. Oh, okay. uh, they did a lot of... Um, uh, let's call it they didn't execute uh, mm -hmm. yep. uh, on a lot of their plans. They disappointed uh, consistently. Uh, that has kind of changed. Management has, um, you know, I, I would say they are making progress in showing the street that they can execute on their plane. I think there was some confusion over the the Express network. They talked about, you know, changing their, uh, their air fleet into three different uh, networks. Um, they're color coding it. One's an express network. Uh, one is more of a deferred network, and one is a network that they're going to rely on third parties. I think people are trying to wrap their heads around how that's going to actually benefit costs and how quickly those costs can come out. All right, let's talk about, I think, the transport logistics topic of the du jour, which is really the Red Sea global shipping. I had to actually go to Google Maps, you know, a week or so ago and figure out where the heck this thing is. And it's right smack in the middle of a lot of stuff. I mean, it's yeah. there in the Suez Canal. That kind of It all came back to me. I hope that's uh, not where you're going on vacation. No, that is not <laughs> where I'm going on vacation. Um, but um, if you're Maersk, how much of a hassle is it to you like, to say, oh, I'm not going to go through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal? Now I got to go around the, the, all the way down the Cape of Africa. Mm -hmm. I mean, economically, that's got to be a, just a 
real negative. Well, it adds 10 to 12 days of, uh, of voyage times. Wow. And, and so that adds costs. Uh, time is money. And so uh, you're going to see shipping rates uh, increase. We've, we've seen an increase in rates. Some, so it's going to impact Europe more. It's going to impact the United States because the Suez Canal, a lot of the, the goods yep. are going into uh, Europe because still the, the best way to send freight from China or, or Southeast Asia to the United States is the West Coast ports or some of the, the Western uh, Canadian ports like Port of Prince Rupert. So that's still the best way to get stuff into the United States. Right. Um, during the pandemic, there was some share shift. We're seeing that coming back to the West Coast. But anyway, so it's going to impact Europe more. Uh, and, and so that's going to add to cost. And what we've seen since, uh, I think it's the end of October, uh, costs up around like 30% to, to ship a, a 40-foot box uh, from Asia to Europe. Wow. But this is good for the shipping stocks. I remember back when that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal. Yes. <laughs> I wrote an article about, I don't remember the name, but the, the carrier of the boat, the stock went up like 100, 200% in just a matter of weeks it, after the blockage. Yes, it was fantastic for memes as well. <laughs> and, you know, yes, it's good. So the container liner industry is facing uh, a difficult uh, next couple of years, probably mm -hmm. through 2025. They're probably not going to make any money because rates are depressed right now. And so, rates are depressed because demand is lower? It's just, uh, so again, I, I use this uh, this word a lot, creamy highs. We were like, okay. we were at ridiculous highs. You know, rates are down 80% off their peaks for, wow. for, for the liner industry. And they're down around 29, 30% versus last year. So they're nearing break even, below break even. So their EBIT levels are gonna probably be pretty negative for most of these companies throughout most of uh, this next year and 2025, assuming that there's not a huge shock that we saw during the pandemic, which, uh, you know, knock on wood, that's not gonna happen. Wow, all right, so um, I guess for 2024, the railroads, my favorite topic, what's kind of your outlook for kind of you know, demand there for the railroads? Because I don't know if we're going to recession or not, but your companies really have a feel for it. Well, as we talked about earlier, we have been in a freight recession. Yep. Um, so intermodal has been negative. Intermodal's okay. been trending down around uh, mid-single digits uh, on the negative side. And that's where you put trailers and containers on flat cars. Right. Boom. And they come in from they come in from the ports, and those stuff? are called international intermodal. Okay. And when they come from a truck to the rail to a truck, that's domestic intermodal. Yep. So I'll be on the test later. Yep. Uh, and, and, uh, um, so what we're expecting is mid-single-digit growth. Again, probably more than GDP. You have easier comps. You have better rail service. Again, knock on wood. Yep. Uh, and that should drive um, more conversions of truck traffic onto the rails because if you're a shipper and you're thinking about, well, do I want to do truck or rail? Like, you know, yes, rail is uh, the emissions are less. It's better for the environment. But, you know, trucking, I know it's exactly when it's going to get to the dock mm -hmm. within a couple hours. Rail, there's a little more variability. So there's a trade-off you have to make. And so if rails are able to improve their service, get as truck-like as they possibly can, they'll never be as good as trucking, uh, but they can get pretty close. And if that trade-off makes sense, then a shipper is going to go that way. You know what you should do? You should do a podcast. That's funny you should say that, Paul. You've got a podcast, I Talking talk. Transports. Just tell us about that. What are you, what are you trying to <laughs> I feel like retail investors, people on financial Twitter actually really like this subject. Yeah, uh, I, I launched it in, in October, talking to great CEOs of public and private companies. Um, my latest episode was Tuesday. It was with the CEO of ArcBest, which is a large LTL carrier, uh, Judy McReynolds. She's fantastic. She's one of the first uh, female CEOs Females, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in trucking. Uh, before that, Derek Leathers, uh, a great character. 
He <laughs> uh, he's the CEO of Warner. Um, you know, he he's, he's, he's a very insightful uh, person, and, and, and love spending time with him. Uh, I've been able to talk to. Um, uh, the head of the ATA, the American Trucking Association. So right, and the great thing about talking transports is sure. it gives you a good sense as to what's going on in the economy because the transports uh, certainly know about it. Lee Klaskow covers all that stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Paul Sweeney. We are live here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We're also streaming live on YouTube, so head over to YouTube.com and search Bloomberg uh, Radio. Nice trade in the insurance space today. M&A trade here. Aon agrees to buy NFP for about $13.4 billion in cash and stock. Let's break down this deal with Matthew Palazzola. He's a senior analyst, property and casualty insurance for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It looks like he forgot to shave today, but that's okay. He's a player. Uh, Matt, I, I see the stock is down 5.5% today, um, so I'm not sure what's going on there. What's Aon trying to do here with this acquisition of NFP? Sure. So it probably bears taking a step back. So these companies are insurance brokerages, right? Okay. They, Aon, particularly their uh, arch rival, Marshall McLennan. Ooh, I know that. They are intermediaries for large businesses that need insurance. Okay. Okay. So Bloomberg even will buy insurance and they would help you do it. Okay. okay? One of the uh, more particularly attractive parts of the market is the middle market. So smaller companies, actually. Okay. Marshall McLennan has been building a business in that space for a long time now. Aon kind of let it go and ignored okay. it. Um, Aon now suddenly feels the need for a, a lot of scale, so they're buying NFP, which is a big player in that middle market okay. space. 
are they getting a good deal? $13.4 billion for NFP Corp. So if you look at the, uh, you know, it's funny, when Aon announced the deal, they talked about it on uh, forward earnings, the forward yeah. EBITDA basis. Yeah. And they said, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a really attractive price on a forward EBITDA mm-hmm. basis. They're building in a, a nice um, <clears throat> jump in that EBITDA as well. If you look at the estimated 2023, it's about 22 times, which is more expensive than what other, there have been deals of this size, but what smaller deals are going for. But there's earnings dilution here. I don't like earnings dilution. What's going on here? So there's earnings dilution up front. Uh, is that th- typical for an insurance deal? Up front, yeah. I mean, okay. it probably takes like two years or something to, to do Because they're not it. talking about, like I was looking for the synergy sentence. I didn't see any synergies. I saw they expects about $400 million in one-time transaction and integration costs. Your industry is different than my media industry. So there, there's some there's some synergies. Okay. Always weary of revenue synergies on the side. They, yes, they're going to cut a bunch that. of costs out. Uh, and they did identify in the back of the uh, the uh, investor presentation some revenue synergies. Okay. I think they might be a, a, a bit high, to, to be totally honest. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's dilutive in the first couple of years. They're taking on some debt for it as well. The margins of this business are not as good as their business either. So, I mean, there's a, a bunch of headwinds. We had calculated their free cash flow yields actually higher if they don't do the deal. Okay. Which is why you see it selling off. Are we going to see, you know, another question being a former banker, you know, when I see a deal in my space, I start picking up the phone and I call everybody saying, hey, we got to do a deal. You saw what Aon did. We got to do a deal I'm trying to write some tickets here. Do you think you'll see more is the structure of that part of the industry ripe for any consolidation? Okay, so what, what's happening in the space, and we wrote a note about this in, in the past, is private equity likes these insurance brokers. They're um, cash cows, oh, okay. right? Yep. So there are a bunch of them that are owned by private equity. The valuations of the deals, a lot of deals take place, valuations are probably peaking a bit this year. Uh, and maybe on the downturn. So we do think it's you know a nice time for them to perhaps get out of this business. Truist owns one. They sold 20% of that business. So you could see more. Aon's been on the hunt, though. I mean, a- something was going to happen. They tried to buy Willis, which was a, a, a rival yes, I know uh, a those couple those. of years ago. Mm-hmm. And that deal fell through due to antitrust concerns. I don't think the same thing happens here. This is a much smaller deal. Um, but since that Willis deal fell through, they've been losing more ground. It was, I think, inevitable that they were going to do something. Do lower interest rates, a Fed pivot, is that going to help spark some more M&A in your industry specifically anymore? I mean, for insurance brokers, that might make it, again, more attractive because they can, can lever them up. And the, the rise in interest rates probably hurt the valuation of deals. Um, for insurance carriers, it probably makes it maybe a, a little bit less likely, to be honest. They're still... Mm-hmm. Interest rates uh, are still higher. Interest rates still earning through, so still helping earnings probably into next year. Uh, past that, then you might see them going the other way. So investment income going down, maybe less likely to to reach on an underwriting deal. Aon, uh, based in Chicago, fifty thousand employees, got a market cap of about uh, fifty nine billion dollars. So a pretty pretty big company. I'm looking at the stock here and uh, year to date, it's off about one, one and a half percent again, off 5.6% today. Uh, probably on the dilution would, would be my guess. Um, all right, let's step back here. I know you guys at Bloomberg Intelligence, you really always have your, your year ahead outlook around this time you publish your 2024 outlook. Where do you think is the best in your coverage, property and casualty insurance? What do you think some of the best areas that insur- investors should be looking at? Okay. So so maybe there's there's a couple of spaces, right? You got personal lines, commercial lines, then you got these insurance brokers and reinsurance. Um, probably one of the more attractive spaces, the more most room for improvement is going to be in 
personal lines of insurance. So that's uh, companies like Allstate and Progressive. Auto insurance costs have been higher than they've ever been. It's been the kind of worst couple of years ever for some of these names. Okay. You're starting to see that thaw towards the end of the year. The stocks have responded to that, but all of these other spaces, they're at probably peak margins and their valuations probably peak before their ROEs do. So, you know, it's going to be tougher for the other spaces to improve much fundamentally in 24. So I think the personal line space probably is a place to be. All right. To show you my ignorance, do falling interest rates, are they net positive or net negative for insurance company? They're net negative. So they, they take in premiums, they okay. invest them, and they make money on that float. Okay. So the rise in interest rates has been good. So it's a net interest margin kind of story that Allison Williams has taught me about for banks. A little bit. I mean, okay. it's, it, they're not, it's not a spread business. Okay. You know, it's just, you know, higher or lower. It can it can support underwriting a little bit. But, I mean, in net-net, it's just a positive. Um, inflation going up, modest inflation, is actually good because it increases insured values, maybe increases interest rates. Runaway inflation, probably bad because you are paying claims from stuff you may have wrote a couple of years ago. So things are more expensive. And just correct me if I'm wrong, knock on wood, we haven't had a ton of like natural disasters kinds of things i mean i'm thinking florida i mean fire, fires think things like that so how's that impacted your business in the last it's been years? good business for particularly reinsurance companies so they're nice. most exposed to these large insurance losses. companies that insure the insurance industry insurance. I love exactly that. paul um so yeah it's been good for them there's been kind of weird weather events um but none of them have risen to the level of impacting the reinsurance companies. so it's been an abnormally good year for the reinsurance companies the primary carriers um did see kind of larger cats midway through the year but the fourth quarter actually looks to be shaping up even better all right, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Matthew Palazzola, he's a senior analyst. He covers the property and casualty insurance companies for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.